We are so happy to be back with you, even on Zoom. And we do have some suggestions for making the most of this online format. Since we believe that storytelling is an exchange between tellers and listeners, here are some ways that you can help us keep that part of this alive. So if you're willing to keep on your video, you can practice having big physical reactions to connect with the other audience members and to show to the tellers. You can share, you can be moved or scared, to name a few. You can also express your reactions in the chat box, which we will save and share with the tellers later. And I know that last time they really appreciated some of the nice things that folks said. Um, you will also have a chance later on to ask questions of our tellers after all the stories. So keep track of any that you have. Those will also go into the chat box. Our general theme for this fall is shelter in stories. We asked ourselves, where do we take shelter when things go wrong? We realized that it's often with each other that we find most comfort and strength. Our three tellers tonight speak to what really matters. We'll hear from Jack Kearney, Dane Peters, and Kamisha Foley. Pat Spaulding will be here tonight as our MC to introduce each teller to you. So please join me in welcoming Pat. Yay stories. First up, I would like to introduce Jack Herney. He and his wife, Susan, live in Stratton, New Hampshire with two moderately well-behaved cats. He has lived in and around Exeter since 1968 when he started teaching history at Phillips Exeter Academy. Jack continued teaching there until his semi-retirement in 2009, when his career was briefly interrupted to work on the staff of a New Hampshire US Senator in Washington, DC. He also claims to have suffered the occasional banishments into administrative purgatory in either DC or Exeter, I'm not sure which, but um, I liked that choice of words so much that I had to repeat them for you to ask him about that later if you want to. Jack now teaches part-time at the Academy while trying to be of help in several nonprofit organizations. Now, in these times of COVID-19, we constantly hear about sheltering in place. Well, tonight's story involves negotiating turbulent times brought on by pesky interlopers. We'll hear how two very nice people confront an invasion of unwanted guests in their new home and all that they hopefully learned from this experience. The story's title is The Battle of the Uninvited Guests. All right, we'll hear from Jack. Thank you, thank you. I'm going to stand here. Uh, it's nice to be with you tonight. Uh, it's a great pleasure. And it's nice to see all the faces too while I'm talking. This is terrific. Um, I'm going to talk about, uh, as you've heard, uh, our new home. It was our new home. We've now moved to Stratum. But uh, a few years ago, about 20 years ago, actually, <clears throat> I was being kicked out of a house at the academy. Uh, I had held an administrative position for uh, five years, and that came with a house, a really nice house. Actually, it's the first academy building 
um, and it is a home now for some people. And uh, during that time, it was a home for the person who occupied my position. But it was over after five years, and I had to find some place to live. We had to find some place to live. Susan and I had lived in Pickpocket Woods earlier in a very uh, wonderful house, but it was dark. It was a lot of trees and so on. We wanted something outdoors that was uh, clear of trees uh, where the light came in and so on. We found a lovely acreage in uh, Kensington, New Hampshire, moved there and uh, started to build a house. Um, in doing so, I happened to read a little bit of Tracy Kidder's book, uh, House. If you're ever going to build a house, don't read that book. I read about 50 pages of it. I hated everybody in the book. I was terrified of what was coming, so I stopped reading it. As it turned out, everything about building the house was pretty nice. Um, I didn't have any bad stories to tell. Uh, we liked the contract, we liked the architect and so on. I moved into the house on July 1st when, in 2000, uh, 2000 and, and loved it. Um, we then left uh, toward the end of the summer for a long three week uh, vacation. And we came back to our wonderful, gorgeous house, which we love. And I was bringing the bags in and Susan was ahead of me. And as I'm bringing them into the house, I hear from her in the bedroom, you'd better come here. I didn't like the tone of her voice. I knew something was up. I dropped the bags. I walked into the bedroom. The bedroom had about an 18-foot ceiling, lots of windows and so on. She was looking up. I looked up. The ceiling was covered with bugs, covered hundreds of bugs. It was hideous. I thought, oh my God, what is this? I had the worst visions. That's my want to think the worst of things. They were certainly going to migrate into the living room all over the house. What are we going to do? I even noticed that the cats weren't walking into the bedroom. They were keeping distance. What are we going to do? Um, well, uh, I thought we're going to probably have to somehow get them out of here. We're not going to sleep here. Now, what does one do in a case like that? I called my older brother instantly. Now, that might not be the first thing you would do. And if that's the case, you don't have an older brother like my older brother. He had lots of time on his hands. Uh, as a matter of fact, we looked at him as kind of a research assistant. Um, if we wanted movies, he knew of what was to see. If we wanted a restaurant to go to, he had reviews. Um, if we wanted a TV guide, he was it. Think of the best example, as I'm sure all of you know, um, if you're employed, um, you can't possibly read all of the New York Times. You must be unemployed to do that. And happily, my brother had a lot of time on his hands. So early afternoon, most days, I'd get a call and he'd say, read this on page three, great article about this. Don't bother with anything on the op-ed page except uh, David Brooks. That's about a B actually, Yale, you know, that kind of thing. We got an instant review of what to read. So I figure if he knows that, the New York Times has, after all, a science uh, section on Tuesdays. He must know something about this. So I called him and I said, Joe, I explained. And he said, well, what kind of bugs are they? I said, I don't know, they're black, they're, 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 they're all over. And he said, well, get closer. 
So I looked at one and I said, well, this one's a ladybug. And he said, well, that's, are they all ladybugs? And I said, well, they, they look kind of similar. And he said, well, I think they're good, I, I, I think, uh, but l let me check. Um, he said, oh, by the way, um, cautionary note, in the extermination process, do not kill them. Because if you hit them, even swipe them softly with a rag, they emit a orange yellow stain. There is no cleaning instrument known to man that will remove that. You will be required to paint your bedroom. I said, oh great, I've got to remove all these and repaint the bedroom. Because I he said, but that's all I know. Don't try to kill them. Okay, he said, I'll go to work. So I said, well, what's next? We let's call an exterminator. So I go to the yellow pages. They had those in those days. And I looked under exterminators and there was one that said um, instantly removed, um, satisfaction guaranteed, um, return visits free, which I thought was kind of odd. If you had a return visit, why would you need one if it was instantly removed? But anyway, I called them. Uh, there was a long list of bugs that they removed on their web page. So I called them and I said, um, we, we have a problem with bugs and we need to get rid of them. And I noticed you, you do all these. And uh, he said, yes. I said, we have ladybugs. He said, uh, why would you want to kill a ladybug? I said, oh, uh, right. Well, um, well I, I don't know. I'm actually calling for somebody else. So um, I, I no. He said, yeah, we don't, we don't do ladybugs. So I said, oh, oh all right, fine, thanks. I'll, I'll tell this guy. Hung up. What do you do next? Well, I don't know about you, but if you own a house, you know that the most important person in your life, after your immediate family, is the people at the hardware store. I know that somebody at the hardware store is going to be able to solve this problem. So in RJ's, we trust. I drive to RJ's in Exeter. They're they, they take some, they have a gene that the rest of us don't have. They're enormously helpful. So I go into the hardware store and I go down to the pesticide aisle. And of course, somebody's right behind me. What do you need? I said, well, we've got a huge problem with bugs and I, I'm looking for pesticides. He said, oh, great. We got all these. What kind of bugs are they? I said, well, they're ladybugs. Why would you want to kill ladybugs? He said, I said oh, right. Well, um, he said, you know, none of these kill ladybug we don't kill ladybugs okay fine i do need a ladder however because i'm going to get up there so i leave with a 10-foot ladder that i didn't know i had to have a day before because if i'm going to get rid of those things i've got to get up to them near them so i come home i get home and we still don't know what we're going to do the phone rings it's brother joe he said well uh, i have some information he said in the first place you don't want to kill those ladybugs. He said, they are great. He said, they kill amphids, for instance. I said, what's an amphid? He said, oh, you want to get rid of amphids. Amphids eat plants. They eat all the good plants. They eat flowers. They eat everything. And ladybugs eat amphids. He said, you have that tree out back that has uh, those tent worms. Plant them under the tree, and I'll bet they'll do something with those tent worms. That's great. Um, so he said, it's terrific. He said, moreover, he said, believe it or not, people harvest ladybugs to sell to gardeners. You can make money off those ladybugs. 
He said, Joe, I just want to get rid of them. I don't want to make money on them. He said, well, okay, but here's the way to get rid of them. You vacuum them. I said, Joe, they're on the ceiling. He said, well, no, a hand vacuum, right? Oh, yeah. He said, actually, I've read about this. They're not going to die when you vacuum them up. They're, they have hard shells. So what do I do? I climb my 10-foot ladder, which I just bought. I vacuum the ceiling, and all the ladybugs are in there. I take them out by this tree, let them go, and said, get up that tree and get to work. And we come back in. I thought, this is terrific. By now, it's not even the end of the afternoon. We've solved our problem. This is terrific. So that night, we slept with uh, no ladybugs in the house. The next night, a couple more came in up on the ceiling and so on. Next day, a couple more came in. We realized that the window was open a little bit and they were coming in that way. So we shut the window and no more ladybugs. A couple of days later, we're lying in bed. We wake up and look up and they say, uh, you see any ladybugs up there? He says, no, no, I, I don't see any either. Don't you wish there were a ladybug up there? I said, actually, yeah, I do. I really had come to like these ladybugs. Um, the, the, the moral of this story, I think, is that what began as a pestilence that was a terrible thing wound up to be a kind of soothing presence. I wanted more ladybugs in my life because of all the good things they did. It tells us a little bit about the change of the seasons and what happens with the change of the seasons. And what happens is often good. Ladybugs come to roost in, in your house sometimes. When I built that house, rebuilt that house, I thought I was going to be telling stories about how awful it was. As I said, there weren't any awful stories. And instead, the only story I tell about our new house is the visit of the ladybugs. And I think the reason I like the story so much is it tells us something about the wonders of nature and how you discover them in very unexpected ways. What looked like something awful, nature had a way of showing us that there was something very good about it. So relating to our theme tonight, what we really need, we need more stories about ladybugs. And we need more stories about nature. In this time of pestilence, we need to know what nature does that's very good. And actually, it's done more than that for us. Susan now has a ladybug pin, which I got her. We seize every opportunity to get ladybug note cards. And actually, it's added to our art collection. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Yeah, let's hear it for the ladybugs. Um, <laughs> I find myself in these COVID times reading stories about people who are adventuring with their with animals. I mean, this interspecies thing is kind of uh, come to uh, my attention. The the uh, the beauty of traveling with a cat on a bicycle, which is one of the things I'm reading now or the guy, uh, Atticus, who climbed a mountain with his dog, climbed, you know, all these peaks, just adventures with animals and focusing in on their lives. So thanks for a nice little insect adventure. 
Coming up next, we have Dane Peters, who lives with his wife, Chris, in Greenland, New Hampshire, is a longtime lover of parenting, teaching, leadership, and writing. He's written more than 100 articles in over 30 different publications on these topics. Keeps a blog, is the author of two books, and along with his wife, Chris's devotion to their four grandchildren, Dane still has time to consult with schools throughout the US and China. Woo! <laughs> he is an avid volunteer in several community organizations, including being on the board of Gather Food Pantry and Reading to Children through United Way's K-Ready Readers program. He invites you to visit his long-running blog, Dane's Education Blog. Now, speaking our minds is generally thought of as a good characteristic. Dane says that like his mother, he's always tried to speak his mind in difficult situations, especially when people come at him with poor behavior. Recently, the COVID-19 environment instigated a harsh response from him that perhaps was offered a little too hastily. The title of Dane's story is Speaking My Mind, Long Ago and Now. All right, Dane, you are on. Thank you, Pat, I appreciate that. I have always tried to speak my mind in difficult situations, especially when people come at me with poor behavior. Most recently, the COVID-19 environment instigated a response from me for clarity. Way back when I was 10 years old, I remember playing in a tree with a friend and it was on a property that a house was being built. And uh, we were having a great time. And then all of a sudden, the contractor comes onto the property, looks up at us at the tree, and says, get out of there. Don't you know you're not supposed to be in there? Now get down right now. I looked at my friend. I looked down at him. And I said, why don't you go and crap in your hat? And of course, my friend is looking at me like, Dane, did you really say that? But I was just really irritated. He could have just said, hey, guys, come on, you got to get down. He looks at me and he says, you know, I know your mother and I'm going to get to her right now and tell her about your behavior. So eventually I got down from the tree and my friend and I left. Well, it was time to check in at home and hear what my mother might have to say. Well, she was never afraid to speak her mind. And I think that's partly where I got my characteristic of speaking my mind, especially when people come at me with poor behavior. I got in the house and my mother said, so, you, uh, you met up with Mr. Foster today, huh? I says, yeah, I know. She said, well, uh, he wasn't very happy, but um, don't worry about it. I trust that you were speaking your mind, just like I do. And um, so, you know, just be careful. And I looked at her and I said, 
gee, thanks, Mom. Uh, did you tell Dad? She said, oh, I did. And well, what did he say? He smiled and just went about his business. And, you know, what I really needed in my life early on was to develop a strong voice. And part of that helped me because eventually I was the president of my high school class for four years. I went on to college and I was president of my class there while I was playing football and baseball. And I wasn't afraid to speak my mind. And I always thought about my mother who modeled that for me in such a good way. Well, let's fast forward 60 years. And it's now mid-March 2020. And along comes COVID-19 and anxiety levels are going through the roof. You now know that. You're all experiencing that. And on May 25th, George Floyd, the incident, uh, which was eight minutes and 46 seconds, just had me think about, wow, what if he was able to speak his voice? But he wasn't because he was choked to death, essentially. And it caused me to reflect on that. Also going on at that time is un unemployment, the economy is struggling, and the political scene gets angrier and angrier. We know that. We're all feeling that right now. Well, a week later, it was Sunday, my wife and I were reading the newspaper. And all of a sudden, we hear these sirens going up and down the highway that's, you know, maybe a quarter of a mile from my house, but we hear these sirens. But it's not just one or two or three. It just goes on and on, sirens. And I said to my wife, hey, there must be something going on. I'm going to get on my bike. And I typically, I ride my bike every day. And I said, you know, I'm going to ride and see wherever those sirens are going. So, and this always intrigued me. Because at one point in my life, I was a volunteer fireman. And then eventually, I became a, an emergency medical technician. So hearing a siren just sort of got me going, thinking, who's hurt? What's happened? Who needs help? Not that I was going to be a helper, because there were enough sirens going by that I'm sure there was going to be plenty of help. I got on my bike. I got to the end of our, my road. And I didn't know which direction to go in, but right away I saw a fire engine going by in one direction and several rescue vehicles going by. And I said, I, I know where I'm going. And I headed in that direction. Well, about a half a mile up the road, there are fire engines and rescue vehicles lined up on the right-hand side of the road. Across the yellow lines of the highway is a police car. There are no lights going on. There is no police officer directing traffic. And I'm wondering, geez, there must be a fire somewhere. I don't see any smoke. So I get off my bike and I think, well, I'm going to walk in and see what's going on. And I'm walking and I can see that everybody is just going around doing their thing. And there's a, I'm walking about to walk by a rescue vehicle. And all of a sudden, out from behind one of the rescue vehicles is a police officer, a big, heavy set police officer. He's not wearing a hat. He's wearing his uniform and a badge. 
But he comes at me and he says, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. This is an emergency scene. Get out of here. I stepped back within seconds and I looked at him and I said, so is the next thing you're going to do is push me to the ground and kneel on my neck? And he looks at me as if to say, whoa, whoa, no, but, but right away he takes that away and he says, just get out of here now. And I mean now. I took my bike to the side of the road and I started walking back away from the scene of the fire, the, the, the whole rescue thing. And I'm thinking about it that why did he come at me like that? Why was he so revved up to do that? When he, all he had to do was to say to me, uh, excuse me, you better just, you got to turn around because there's a fire going on here. And that's all he had to say. And I often, I thought back to George Floyd in terms of how that all developed. And I felt as though I got a little piece of that. Maybe, maybe not. But feeling how someone is approached in, in that way. But I keep reflecting back on the fact that I'm so appreciative of my mother and father because in those early years, they modeled, they helped me understand about what it means to speak my mind, but also to treat people with respect and do it in a way that people will receive the message rather than push it away. And that's how I, that's how I learned and continue, hopefully I taught it to my own children, about speaking one's mind and making sure that humanity is taken care of in a way that is helpful rather than corrosive. Thank you. Thank you, Dane. Yeah, it's, it's really something to consider the opportunity to speak your mind, but um, some of us have so much more of, <laughs> so much less really at stake when we do that. Like some, some of us have to be very careful and other of us, you know, could just blow out a whole lot of spewing, not to mention any political candidate. Okay, there we go. On to something else. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dane. <laughs> We're going to um, go next to Kamisha Foley, who moved to York, Maine with her husband in 2019. Prior to that, they made their home in Northern Virginia, where she worked and commuted in and around Washington, DC. While living in Virginia, Kamisha was supporting uh, a supporting member of Story District, a storytelling organization in DC. Her daughter, Katiri, is currently pursuing her master's in public health at Virginia Tech, which greatly pleases both of her very proud parents. Now in these challenging times that we've been discussing. With so much of what we're used to falling apart, most of us want to do what's best for ourselves and for others by making good choices or doing hard work or better yet, 
just by getting cut a lucky break. Wouldn't it be nice? Kamisha's story is about searching for that small beacon of good luck, a change in luck when so little seems to be going right. Her story is titled, Lucky 311. Come on, Kamisha. Hi, everybody. Well, I just wanted something different. Something different than the steaming, hot, greasy bowl of hamburger helper that my father was setting down in front of me what felt like the millionth day in a row. I knew better at eight years old than to argue with my dad about what he was serving for dinner because you're gonna take what you got and like it. Yeah, things in kind of tight and you didn't get much choice of groceries. I was hoping one day I'd get lucky enough not to have hamburger helper for dinner. But even when I was little, see I'm the youngest of five Irish Catholic kids. We grew up in Massachusetts. My three older brothers were big guys. They ate a lot of food. My sister and I, I can remember my mom making big pots of spaghetti and meatballs or the all-time favorite of hot dogs and beans and brown bread. There wasn't much rotation in the menu in those days because money was tight. As it came to pass, my parents split up. My three older brothers went off on their own. My sister and I traveled out to Oklahoma with my mom. But then I didn't like Oklahoma so much. I'm not a big fan of tornado season. I decided to come back to the East Coast and live with my dad. I try to picture him back in the early 70s raising an eight-year-old girl on his own. My dad was such a proud man. He had moved from Boston to DC and taken a job working for a very fancy clothing store in DC, right on Connecticut Avenue, selling Hart, Shafter, and Mark suits. He was very proud. Even though we didn't have a car, we walked everywhere. And he would say to me every day, you know, Red, someday our luck is gonna change. So as it came to pass, my dad and I were talk about what makes luck. And he reminded me that he and his dad both played the lottery all the time. See, it was an Irish thing. You play the lotto because you're bound to hit it eventually and your luck and all your problems will be solved. I said it just kind of went along with it. What else was I going to do? But what happened was my dad worked for a union shop local UCFW, United Food Commercial Workers, local 400 in Washington, DC, and they went on strike. This proud man in his very sharp clothes came home to tell me that I was gonna go walk a picket line with him at eight years old. Because even then, the union fees weren't gonna cover all the bills. One day he came home and he said, you're not walking the picket line today, we're going to the horse races. I didn't know anything about horse races. My dad said, come on, Red, we're going. And off we walked to the train station, at, um, bus station at 13th and New York Avenue. Got on the bus to go to Rosecroft Raceway to see the trotters. You know, those are the horses that like can't put their legs out all the way to get the little guy in the carriage behind it. So we got in line with all these other sad people who looked really angry and hungry. And I thought, well, maybe our luck will change. We got on the bus. My dad didn't talk the whole way there, except when we came to the stop to get off and he said, 
Our luck is gonna change today, Red. He called me Red. We call our daughter Red. Anyways, we come down off the bus and I get smacked in the face with the stale, awful smoke. Stale smoke. And then the ground was completely littered with stale and burnt out cigarette butts and crumpled up papers. And some guy shoves a piece of paper in my dad's hand and says, here's your program. My dad said, hey, Red, stick with me. Hold on tight. Off we went into the horse race track. And he showed me the betting window. And then he took me outside and showed me the big betting board and how they decided who won the races and who didn't. And he was all excited his luck was going to change. Back and forth we went. He tried to explain to me winning odds, but, you know, I was eight years old. I really didn't care. First couple of times he bet, it didn't go very well. Crumpled up the piece of paper and threw it on the ground. Seemed like there was a lot of that going on in that place. It got later. I was really hungry. I said, can we get something to eat, please? Oh, yeah, Red, of course, of course. Come on, let's go. We'll go get something up at the, uh, the window. We'll go. Come on. We get up to the window, and my dad orders a single hot dog with tomatoes, ketchup, mustard, and relish. I hate relish. I hate relish. My dad splits the hot dog in half and hands me my half. And I was like, I'm not going to argue about the food my dad's putting in front of me. So I ate the hot dog with relish, even though I didn't like it. Just as we were finishing up, this guy comes by and whacks me on the head like this. I was like, hey. My dad said, Brett, don't mind him. Those crazy racehorse people, they think rubbing the hair on a red head is good luck. That's it. That's it, Red. You're the one. You're the good luck. I don't know what my dad is talking about. He goes, that's it. you got to pick the next horse. Hurry up. And he flips open the program. says, hurry up, pick a horse. So I look down. I see number three, Kay's kin. Well, my name starts with K, so I'm good to go. I'm like, let's do that one. He says, hurry up. we got to get in before the wedding window closes. And I look down, and I see that poor horse in last place is number 11. I said, can we do that one? He's like, really, Rod? I'm like, yeah, Daddy, It's nobody's going to pick it. It's going to be all alone. He's like, all right, come on, let's go. And we stroll up to the window, and that same old mean-looking lady who's just tired of taking everybody's money and watching them throw their lives away takes my dad's money, and he says, give me 311 on the exacta. And come on, let's go. Down to the horse rail we went, right in front of the big board that has all the little things that flipped and tell you where the horse is coming in. I was very excited, but I still couldn't see it. I think I was eight years old. I was too short to see the horses coming around the track. When the horses started off, my dad was like, this is it, Red. It's going to change our luck. I hope so, because I'm really sick of hamburger helper. I'm hoping we can get something different for dinner. Comes around, comes around. People are starting to yell and cheer for the horses. My dad's like, come on, three, come on, three. And a few other things I can't repeat on public television. Comes around, they're coming down the track. I can see them and cross the finish line. All the lights flashing to get the picture. My dad scoops me up. He's like, you did it, Red. You did it, Red. We won, we won. That's the happiest I had seen my dad in a very long time. It was such a great feeling. 
said, come on, let's go get our winnings. And off we went to the window. I wish I could remember how much money we actually won, but I don't. I just know he was really happy. And when we got on the bus to go back to DC, we got to have McDonald's for dinner. So that was a bonus. Years later, my dad would always say to me, 311's my lucky lottery number, Red. You know that, right? You know that, right? I'm gonna play 311. You gonna play 311? Sure, dad, I'll play 311. And he signed off all of his cards to me with 311 in the bottom corner. And he would call me up on the phone and we would talk for a long time. And just before he would hang up, he'd say, Red, remember, 311. And I'd say, 311, daddy. And I'd hang up. Several years later, our daughter was born. Our daughter was born in Virginia. And that very day in Virginia, the lottery number was 311. It was a lucky 311 indeed. Thank you. Who's supposed to say thanks now? <laughs> that was a good story. Um, here comes David, Pat. Okay. Thanks, Kamika. Howdy, everyone. Nice to see you all. So this is the interview or uh, conversation portion of our program. Uh, it's a kind of time when we have a chance to sort of look behind the curtain, so to speak, and um, have a feeling for the story behind the story. Uh, during this COVID crisis, uh, it certainly is challenging for storytelling. Um, it's not exactly the same as having our stories in, in our little intimate uh, PPM TV stage. But the other nice, uh, there is some nice things about the opportunities that Zoom presents us with. And one is this chat function that Amy mentioned earlier. So we're going to have a conversation with each of our tellers. Um, and I'll start off with a question or a comment for each one. And we'll take them in the order that we did, uh, heard them. Um, but if you have a question uh, to submit, anyone who wants to submit a question can do so please use the public chat function that you can find at the bottom of your screen. Uh, there is a private option. We would ask you not to use that and keep your mic muted, uh, please as well. And Amy will collate the questions and we'll take as many as we can um, uh, in the time that remains. <clears throat> so with that said, uh, as I said, we're gonna take them in the order that uh, the stories were told. So Jack, it feels a little odd to uh, meet you this way for the first time, but uh, this is the world we live in. Um, and welcome to True Tales Live. Um, Thank you. So uh, we discuss the stories themselves or sometimes the craft of storytelling. And I thought I'd just begin with you uh, by asking, how did you get involved in storytelling in the first place? Um, at the Academy, um, we had something uh, since the 1970s called meditation and uh, faculty initially and then students were asked once a week, uh, one student or one teacher to give talk 
of 15 minutes or so about something. Um, and uh, I've started them in 1970 and I would give one oh, every three or four years. Um, and this actually came out of a meditation that I gave. Um, I also um, paired it with another one. This was half of that meditation. Also history, which I taught is stories. And uh, so I grew up with stories. That's my profession. I read stories all the time. Um, and uh, at the Academy, I've given any number of talks and they're all stories. I, I appreciate that. And I was thinking that uh, teaching history would certainly provide an opportunity for storytelling. I take it that it did. Certainly does. It's quite a cast of characters. <laughs> no end. Well, we, we appreciate your character cast, your uninvited guests. Thank you so much. And we'll have some more questions for you, I'm sure. Uh, turning now to you, Dane. Your career in education, you worked as a teacher, administrator, a head of school. Um, you've done, and I take it still do, professional consulting. Um, so I wanted to focus on the whole field of education. In this time of sheltering in place uh, with remote learning, I wondered if you could share with us <clears throat> your forecast for the future of uh, teaching and learning, uh, your thoughts about what the new normal might be in that in your chosen field. Thank you, David. Um, what I'm seeing in, in terms of the schools that I still work with and uh, get sort of in the trenches with teachers and parents and having two granddaughters or four grandchildren, um, one in Chicago, two in Chicago and two here in Portsmouth, um, I'm feeling both sides of the spectrum in terms of whether I'm a teacher, whether I'm an administ school administrator, or I'm a parent or a grandparent. It's about being sensitive to one another. And I love, I, I love Catherine Tucker Wyndham's four L's because that's really what life is all about, especially when she talks about listening. Uh, that we should be listening twice as much as we talk. But also the laughing, the learning, the loving, it's what it's all about. And that's what I experienced in my career. And that the more I shared those characteristics, the more people would get closer to me because what it was developing was trust. But I was always keeping in mind that Dane, as the head of a school, um, I was modeling to my teachers, to my parents, and to my kids, to all the kids in the school. So if they're looking up to the head of school that way, then hopefully they would carry those characteristics with them. And that is a predominant characteristic in Montessori education, where I spent my last 15 years um, and love going to Montessori schools. So I think with those characteristics, we can push this pandemic down, let the virus do what it's going to do until a vaccine comes along, but let's treat each other with respect and let's treat each other with love and kindness. You're here. Thank you so much. I'm sure there'll be more questions for you as well. Misha, our third and final teller, I so much appreciate your storytelling style. Um, 
and your story um, with your dad is a little bit of an echo to Amy Antonucci's dad's story. So we have a kind of a storyteller theme going here. <laughs> um, and I, it sort of sounds like uh, storytelling is part of the Irish Catholic gene. I'm not sure if that's the case. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I was also thinking, you're talking about your daughter studying uh, public health. And I would think that somewhat, as with Jack and teaching history, that public health might have be a place, especially these days, where storytelling would be especially important and particularly relevant. Do you talk with your daughter about storytelling? Let's share your thoughts, if you would. Well, she's probably suffered through a lot of my stories. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think as a parent, you, you, you tell your kids stories to try to direct them. Um, right. And sometimes they get through an age cycle where they, you know, don't want to hear anything. And then they, they come out the other side of that. Thank goodness. Um, I think for storytelling for her, it be, for her, I've seen it evolve in, um, she's turned into a trainer uh, where wow. she works at the university. Uh, she works in, in dining services there as her, as how she makes money while she goes to school. So she tells me about, you know, how she, she tells me stories about her training. So uh, it, it might be generational. I'm not sure. I know, I know for my siblings and I, we've always joked that, that it's a real competition between the five of us who could tell the best stories. But we all know that my brother, Bill, who is the middle of my three brothers tells the best stories of all of us. Wow. Well, you tell great stories, too. And it did occur to me as you were speaking that maybe storytelling is generational or there is an Irish Catholic <laughs> storytelling gene, something like that. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. Amy, do we have some uh, questions for our tellers? We sure do. Um, actually, maybe we should go backwards here, starting with Kamisha. Um, oh. Actually, there's a lot. Um, so we'll start. I'm gonna. What I'll do is kind of pick one for each person, and we'll make our way around here a few times. Um, Kamisha, we'd love to know: Did a hamburger, especially Nina, did a hamburger <laughs> helper go off the dinner menu menu for a while after the win? Uh, <laughs> we upgraded to cheeseburger helper. <laughs> Uh, you know, there was just a lot of beef in those days. It was just how it was. I, I don't remember any particular meals really not involving some form of hamburger. There probably were, but, you know, kids' memories kind of get stuck on one thing. All right. Um, I'm going to ask Dane this question. Um, Nina would love to know what your story crafting process is how you turn something that's happened to you into a story. Thank you. I, uh, sometimes there's certain things that happen in your lifetime. Why would I remember when I was 10 years old, 60 years ago, why would I remember that? Well, there's certain stories, as you know, that stick in your head. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes along and starts prying them out. And I have to say that I have to give a lot of credit to the True Tales Live workshops. 
because Pat um, and David and Amy just sort of work around and they pull the good ingredients out of it. And then all of a sudden you can go back now and start crafting it. This was, this has been my seventh story on True Tales Live. And I just enjoy it so much. And I appreciate their support in terms of getting me to take my stories and pull them out and put, I've got a lot of thoughts in my head. So I hope I'm gonna keep coming back and I hope they'll keep listening to me and say, yeah, let's do that one. So that's how they evolve. Thank you. Well, we are very glad to help. We love working with people. Jack, here's one for you. We'd love to know where have you told stories before? Um, uh, especially meaning live. I know this is sort of live, but in person, I think is the question. Um, as I said, it began, uh, I guess, those meditation. Um, and those were, you could talk about anything and it was about 20 minutes and uh, people didn't have to show up. It was a voluntary kind of thing. But um, since then, um, once you get, um, sort of known for telling stories, you get asked by alumni associations and so on. So I've told stories to um, the New York Alumni Association, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I did the Word Barn, which of course is a fabulous place. Um, I speak to uh, alumni groups that come back on campus. Um, I would give a Memorial Day address every year at the, at the academy out in front of our uh, Vietnam Korean Memorial, and that was all about stories of veterans from um, Exeter, uh, the Academy, and, and their experiences and so on. So various venues, um, both, and then in the Assembly Hall, which is the entire thousand students, I would give a talk um, at least once, a, usually once a term um, on something. Um, so I told a lot of stories in lots of different places. So Jack, it sounds like um, what you called the meditation, I, I went to Amherst College and we had what were called required chapels. Um, and the chapels weren't particularly religious and it sounds like the meditations weren't particularly Zen meditations or anything else. It was a, a gathering of the, of the academy. The meditation was anybody who wanted to show up to hear somebody talk about what was important to them for 20 minutes. And it, and it could start, which we're glad of. I beg pardon? It got you started down this path, which we are glad of. Well, yeah, and, and uh, they didn't have to be necessarily something deeply religious at all. Right, right, be, right. Uh, Anything. Our chapels weren't particularly religious at all. You had, we had to show up and they took attendance. <laughs> There's a follow-up question for Jack that both Jody and Pat want to know, what sort of history did you teach? Um, everybody teaches the, uh, just about everybody teaches a couple of sections of U.S. history. But then uh, one of the great joys of teaching there is you can create your own courses. So I ta taught a course called War and Peace in Modern Times for a good deal of time. Um, that grew out of the fact that I taught modern European history, which was generally from um, Napoleon's period to the present day. So it involved lots of wars and the attempts at peace. And then uh, it, I ended uh, teaching about 10 years, a course called um, um, 
Law in American Society, which was great fun. We ended with uh, meetings of the PEA Supreme Court in which kids would argue current cases before the court, which hadn't been decided, where their uh, classmates who weren't arguing the case were the judges uh, for which I got black robes and so on. Um, that was ended the term and people said, you, you have the most brilliant idea for keeping seniors involved at the end of the spring term, make it comp competitive and give them to wear something. And it worked. Wonderful. Um, so we are needing to wrap up here. Uh, there are, well, there are a few more questions. Thank you so much folks for putting those out there. I'm sorry we didn't get to them all. Um, and let's see here. The other thing we need to do is um, need to let you know is there are also really some wonderful comments and nice things said to our tellers. And we do promise that I will save that and send that to them. So you will all um, be heard that way. But I have a few other things to leave you with here. Thanks to everyone for being with with us tonight, our wonderful storytellers and our very vibrant, active audience. Thank you all so much for being here. Mark your calendars for our next True Tales Live Zoom show, Tuesday, November 24th, 7 to 8 p.m. You can go to truetaleslivenh.org to find the links to register for each show. Maybe someone will put that in the chat too. Um, we do need tellers for upcoming shows. We especially these days encourage attending our ongoing monthly workshops on Zoom. The next one, they're from 7.30 to 9, November 10th and December 1st, so that you can get feedback on your story and you can practice telling on the Zoom platform. You can be in touch with us, info at truetaleslivenh.org to let us know you wanna tell and to find out more and also our website has the links to register for the workshops. Watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. anytime as video on demand or podcast. Our website makes it easy to just click and get to any of those options. Let's do a few thanks here. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Benningfield and Kamisha Foley are a couple of the folks working hard to keep this show going. I'm Amy Antonucci, and as we sign off tonight, we ask you to join us again in a little dance party inspired by the fun music John Lovering found for us to end the show too. This is a new tradition, so please join us. You can stand on up, and John, let's do it.
Good night, everyone. Good night.